0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Terry Talks Fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about world building in urban fantasy and the supernatural. Not, not Supernatural the TV show, although what we're talking about probably is present in Supernatural as it is in any other urban fantasy TV series, I've never actually seen an episode of Supernatural, but I'm sure that the fandom will gently and respectfully inform me if I'm getting anything wrong here. Specifically, the world building element that we are going to be looking at today is a variation of the trope affectionately known in sci-fi circles as rubber forehead aliens. I don't know if there's a term for this in urban fantasy or not, so again, if someone does know, please reach out and let me know what it is and where I can look it up. The name Rubber Forehead Aliens is a trope that was born from the early to mid-last century sci-fi TV serials like Flash Gordon and Star Trek, where the alien of the week was quite often very clearly just some human dude in a rubber mask that was bought from a Halloween store or a girl in a bikini and she was painted green, or someone with funny rubber ears or eyebrows slapped on so the makeup team could call it a day and head to the bar. Basically, it was a product of the time and the budget and the limitations of the storytelling medium. After all, you couldn't put in a sentient cloud of gas on the screen too many times or you'd blow your entire effects budget on that one character. As urban fantasy started getting more popular in the later decades of last century, and has only exploded in popularity since, an interesting inversion of that same trope began to develop alongside it. Not a matter of humans poorly masquerading as monsters or aliens, but this time supernatural creatures passing themselves off as humans, hiding their true supernatural nature until discovered by the protagonist. Sometimes that's the protagonist themselves having to come to terms with the unexpected reveal that they are one of these creatures, though they previously thought of themselves as human, and the story follows them coming to terms with the idea that reality as they know it is only half the truth. This can range from reveals as culturally mainstream as Hagrid's famous, You're a wizard, Harry, to gritty detectives who realise that the killer they're chasing is actually a vampire, to a magical plague or radiation event that reawakens dormant supernatural genes hidden in a subset of the population. And a lot of the time, these reveals are handled really well and use the strength of the trope to build out an entire world within the framework of the reader's or the viewer's understood reality. It's a shortcut to world building in the very best sense because the writer's using the audience's own knowledge to fill out any blank spaces in that world building. After all, you don't need to go into detail about where the tale is set if it's set in New York, which everyone knows from either living or visiting there, or from a hundred other fictional representations. You don't need to explain the majority of the tech. People already understand how cars and phones and email works. But that's also where we start to see some of the danger in this trope and the places where it falls apart if it's not done well. Because the urban fantasy writer is building on a foundation the audience knows intimately, any deviation from that reality has to make sense and it has to be introduced in a way that makes it clear that the reality the writer is presenting is, in fact, the way that things have been in the world all along. One of the reasons this trope fascinates me so much is because that moment of discovery or realisation that the reader's having there happens all the time in archaeology. Archaeologists are constantly discovering or reinterpreting something new, that has huge ripple effects on everything we understand about a culture or a time period. In fact, a brilliant example of this occurred right in the years between my working as a full-time archaeologist and now working as a full-time writer. Back in 2015, it was a fact that Aboriginal Australians had come to the continent 41,000 years ago. There was some contested evidence for earlier dates, But as far as the unequivocal, unimpeachable archaeological evidence stated, 41,000 years was the earliest benchmark we had. And I've written hundreds of archaeological reports which all reflect that known reality, which all reference that known date in order to inform the significance of the artifacts and the sites that I'm examining in those reports. And then, only a few years ago, new unequivocal, unimpeachable evidence came in which pushed that date out past 60,000 years. And although the site from where that age was taken was a new discovery for archaeologists, it doesn't change the fact that this is actually how long people have been here all along. This was the reality that we've been living in. We just thought that the reality was something different. And this example particularly applies in the case of looking at urban fantasy, because not everybody shared the archaeologists' view of reality. Aboriginal people have been saying all along that they have been here much longer than the 41,000 years that archaeologists were waving about as the truth. So that's all very interesting perhaps, but what has it got to do with urban fantasy world building? Well, the key similarity between new archaeological discoveries changing our understanding of the past and a writer introducing a moment of discovery in the narrative where the audience realises that the world is not quite as they knew it, the similarity is that the true reality will always be the one that makes the most sense. We can have a multitude of perspectives on history constructed either from hard scientific data and archaeological exploration or constructed from oral histories and storytelling traditions, but because history is history, because there's an objective truth of what actually happened, in the archaeological example, the truth of when people actually came to the continent, the more you look at it, and the more evidence you expose, the only interpretation of the past which will continue to be supported by that evidence will be the one that is closest to the truth. And that's the same in fiction, and the same in urban fantasy. Any change the writer makes to the reality that their readers know and understand must be supported by enough evidence in both the fictional world and the narrative set within it that that is the reality that makes the most sense. It needs to give the reader that same feeling of epiphany when the truth is revealed because that reveal needs to be the catalyst for other things suddenly making sense in light of this new reality. Suddenly it makes sense that the killer was draining the blood out of their victim. Suddenly it makes sense that the person you thought was your friend didn't understand any of your idioms. Or suddenly it made sense why your uncle and your aunt, who, like normal things, really didn't like you and made you live under the stairs. Now, Pulling that off is a bit of a trick in fiction, because unlike history, changes in a fictional narrative to include things like supernatural creatures hiding in plain sight runs into the problem that, as far as all evidence suggests, it's something that is not reflecting objective truth in reality. So, the more you examine it, the more questions you start testing that theory with the easier it is for that core claim to unravel. And this, unfortunately, is a major hurdle that's not always cleared by urban fantasy writers. How often have you put a series down or turned off the TV episode and never returned because the story that was being told just got too silly? I know I sure have for series that have introduced too many fantastical elements, without properly addressing how those later elements in a series related to what we saw or read at the start of the series. Because if it's something that's there in the narrative now, just like those archaeological sites, it must have been there, present in the world all along, as we were constructing our understanding of that world without knowing it. And... The aforementioned simplicity of just masking supernatural creatures or abilities or realities does come back around to bite the writer here, because the claim, you didn't notice but they were here all along, can only be pushed so far before there's too much evidence which makes it start to crumble. The more changes that are made away from actual reality, the more those changes have to be supported by the world and the history of that world and that last part is where it all too often falls down because it's so effective and seems so easy the temptation to add things in behind the facade in order to solve a narrative problem or to make a scene more exciting is really enticing and it can seem in the moment like you've done a really good job of contextualizing how those changes relate to the world in general in that moment. But everything a writer changes using the supernormal creatures concept ripples backward through what they've already written, but also through the wider history of that world's world building. Any creature that exists now in a modern urban fantasy setting must also have been present in the world, say, during the Great Wars, or past economic crises, or global pandemics. And if their supernatural powers or abilities or racial features are too extreme in the present, it strains credulity for how and why that didn't impact the historical development of the past, and why we're not looking at, instead of, a secret story set in what we think is the real world, why we're not looking at a completely alternate timeline, because surely things would have changed dramatically if these creatures or powers or abilities were actually there when these major global events were occurring. Now, a cunning writer would deflect their audience from dwelling on those parts of the story by focusing on the narrative in the present. But if every third character in the story is a werewolf, and someone walks by a picture of their grandparent in a military uniform from when they were drafted to Vietnam, those little things start to introduce a niggle at the back of the audience's mind, whether they're aware of that or not. And since many of the narratives in urban fantasy also include coming-of-age stories, or family legacy tales, they by their very nature invite the audience to look back into the fictional world's history, or the characters' individual histories. And if the proposed reality deviates too much from the audience's own recollection of having lived through similar events, if the new evidence that the writer is proposing doesn't make sense, In the historical context as equally as it makes sense in the present part of the narrative, then the audience will, consciously or subconsciously, just reject the world that the writer is presenting. And that's when you get a story that seems like it's going silly or is just poorly written. So if you've ever wondered why what you're reading or watching has just seemed to go completely off the rails, this might give you a bit of an idea as to what's going on in the background. And if you're a writer wanting to include supernormal creatures in your urban fantasy, then remember the most important rule in any writing, archaeology. Because if you want to give that reader the moment of discovery that transforms the way they understand the world, whether that's digging up an artifact from a time and place it shouldn't be, or whether that's revealing that magical creatures exist and have been secretly living alongside the normies all along, then that new bit of evidence had better be the thing that stands up to scrutiny and makes better sense in the context of the world than what we thought about the world before. Thanks for listening, everyone. Next week we'll be bringing that archaeological lens back to another book review and looking at something which takes the idea of world-building and history to insane new levels. And that is the fourth and latest installment of Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive series, Rhythm of War. Sanderson's fiction has been a long-time obsession of mine, and the first Sanderson book I ever read was the original Way of Kings, the first book in this very series. So I cannot wait to talk to you all about it. And if you want to join in the conversation, please don't hesitate to reach out to me, either by email to terrytalksfiction at gmail.com or through the Discord server or Facebook pages, both of which I'll link in the show notes underneath this episode. I can't wait to talk fiction with you all again soon.